everyone, and welcome to the 29th episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman, or as friends of The Atlas Society know me, JAG. I am CEO of The Atlas Society, which is the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative and cost-effective ways, such as setting up this mobile studio with an ironing board and a very sophisticated makeup mirror light system. Um, today, we are joined by Johan Norberg, man who needs very little introduction, but before I even get into his introduction, I want to remind all of you who are joining us. If you're joining us by Zoom, uh, please make sure to ask your questions by typing them into the Zoom chat, or if you're joining us on YouTube, just type your questions into the comment section. We will get to as many of them as possible. Uh, Johan Norberg is joining us from Sweden, where it is 10 p.m., so we're very grateful for him to stay up to join us today or tonight. He is the best-selling author of many books, including Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, and In Defense of Global Capitalism, uh, in which he, um, uh, and also, of course, his most recent book, Open the Story of Human Progress, which argues that the key to human success is openness, uh, the freedom to explore and exchange, whether it's goods, ideas of people, that's certainly a um, spirit that resonates us with us at the Atlas Society. Uh, the book was just included in The Economist's Book of the Year list, which is quite an achievement. Um, a native of Sweden, uh, Norberg is a senior fellow at both the Cato Institute and the European Center for International Political Economy in Brussels. Um, he hosts documentaries on development and um, economics uh, uh, for American public television, including Free or Equal, uh, Economic Freedom in Action, Power to the People, and The Real Adam Smith. John, Johan, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And I want to warn uh, everyone, we are having it. It's a little bit of a delay um, with between Washington, D.C. and Sweden. So we'll, uh, we'll try to take it slow and hopefully uh, won't have too many hiccups in the programming. So, uh, Johan, first, congratulations on your new book, Open. Um, in it, you point out that there have been many golden eras throughout history across cultures uh, and more recently in Western culture uh, and in America. What, what is a golden era? What does it look like? Well, obviously, if we're looking for golden eras in history, we should start with the era that we're in right now and try to see if there are similarities with any previous efflorescence in history and uh, well what we've seen now is that we've had 200 years of spectacular progress we've seen uh, amazing economic growth perhaps uh, of around 3000 percent when it comes to the average wealth per capita um, uh, in in uh, the most advanced countries we've increased life expectancy from around 30 globally to more than 70 today. We've reduced extreme poverty from almost 90% to 9% today. So that's spectacular. It's uh, This has never been achieved before. But there are episodes in history where we've seen attempts at getting there, when we've seen a rapid increase in scientific knowledge, in technological innovation, and some economic growth that, at least for some time, created rapid improvements for a small part of the globe. And we've seen that in all different civilizations uh, whenever they've been relatively open. We've had it in pagan uh, Greek uh, city-states in pagan Rome. We've had it in the Muslim Abbasid Caliphate a thousand years ago. In China, Song China, 1,000 years ago, they fought with gunpowder, they navigated with the nautical compass, and uh, they printed books with um, a printing press, the three inventions that Karl Marx 
writing in the 1860s, said this is something peculiar to the European bourgeoisie. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about golden eras in history. Moments in time when there was subtly some liberation for individuals to think differently and start to improve their world. So, Johan, I would also like to just sort of preface uh, the conversation with regards to your book. What was the inspiration for writing open? Um, was there work unfinished in progress or is this a continuation or was there a more immediate cause? Yes, it's really what I do when I decide on what to write about next is I'm looking for the thing that people just don't get, where I find problems in the public discourse. And uh, it differs. Sometimes it's about uh, free trade. It's been about the financial crisis. Was this caused by markets or the government? And uh, recently I've, I've written a lot about progress because this is the one thing that people just take for granted. They don't understand where it's coming from or even that it's there. So that's what progress was about, but I left some work unfinished with that book. I didn't explain really what caused it, the uh, historical starting points, the ideas and the institutions that made it possible. And I also wanted to explain why it's constantly in peril and why people attack it. So in a way, um, if progress was the original Star Wars trilogy, this is the prequel and the sequel at the same time, but hopefully a little bit better. Than, than that. <laughs> well, um, in terms of people being closed to new ideas, uh, closed to new practices, um, you give the Romans as an example of a society that conquered many people, but were always willing to um, give up their practices when they came across better ones and adopt them. Uh, today, we have um, a lot of anger and judgment People are outraged and offended by what they um, pejoratively call cultural appropriation, whether it's a hairstyle, you know, such as dreadlocks or, or music, food, clothing. Um, what is the danger in your view of that kind of thinking? Well, the problem with the idea of cultural appropriation is that culture is appropriation. It has always been us looking for better ideas, better ways of doing things or better looking <laughs> things that will improve our, our lives or so we think. And uh, that's always been the case with, and, and you mentioned the Romans, it's um, Montesquieu, the Enlightenment writer pointed out that the, the key to their success was that they were always willing, as soon as they had conquered a new territory, a new population, they were always willing to abandon their own key to any kind of progress. Finding the right balance between holding firm when what you've got is something brilliant and letting go if you find something better. That's how you continue to make progress. And that's what culture is always about, no matter what you look at. So I want to try Our to- Haircuts, uh, ways of talking. If I'm back, <laughs> then yes, then the um, good. Thank you. Uh, the the problem with condemning. Uh, cultural appropriation is that you basically condemn culture. And this is a weird phenomena where we see this uh, connection between a kind of radical postmodern identitarian left and a nationalist right. They think that culture has got to be something pure, something that comes to you from your ancestors and you don't mix, you don't share, you don't combine, you don't remix culture. And then basically you lose everything that you've got because it's all a combination. It's all a mixture between people who ventured out of of the cave and out of our, our small territory and found new and better ideas so that we got access to more brains and more creativity from other places. Is there a downside or a danger of a society 
being open? Is it possible to be too open? Does that maybe speak to some of the, the fears that people have about outside influences? Well, I don't think there are any downsides in itself to being open because what it really means, you know, it sounds like it's warm and cuddly. It's being generous to people. Uh, that would be nice. Perhaps that's a, a part of it. But the most important thing is that it's just plain long-term self-interest. It's a way of making yourself and your own whatever it is, uh, your family, your organization, your society stronger by getting access to more ideas and more creativity and uh, more goods and services from other places. That's what openness is about. And that's why it's the solution uh, to our problems rather than something that creates problems, because it it really means more eyeballs looking at the world's problems, so a greater chance that someone will come up with good solutions. But there is one problem, and it is that lots of people aren't comfortable, don't like it, because uh, we it's part of our human nature. We are traders. We constantly exchange favors, goods, ideas with others, but we're also slightly tribalist. Uh, we have this tendency to think that our group is something special and there are other groups there and perhaps our relationship is a zero-sum game. And in that case, being open feels like we're being dangerously exposed to somebody else, another culture, another country. Yeah, or uh, another take on a philosophy is certainly something that we come across within the objectivist community and, and people who are fans of Ayn Rand's literature and philosophy that uh, there has been even within a community that should be committed to principles of, of independence of thought um, and open exchange, sometimes a, a rigidity and a, and a uh, I think a fear of, of wanting to um, exchange with people who share even maybe 95% of, of our ideas, but uh, have a bit of a, a different take. And thinking of objectivism and, and when you talked about it being in a country or an individual's long-term self-interest of being open long-term self-interest that that perked me up because um, in reading up on you, I read that growing up at one point you were active as a left anarchist. Uh, so is there an Ayn Rand connection? What, uh, what, contributed, what contributed to that orientation early of, of left anarchism? Was it something that you just inherited? Um, and what contributed to your rethinking and kind of making your way to a new worldview? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting uh, uh, part of my my background because I I did what I think many people do when they're young, looking at the world, taking all the progress for granted, my lifespan, health wealth, technology, and so on, and just finding the problems. And I associated that with, you know, modern world the, after the Industrial Revolution, uh, big industry, pollution, all those problems, and I wanted to find something different. And I think that two things changed my mind. Uh, one of them being history, just the fact of reading up on, uh, you know, my family background, realizing that life... Uh, back before the Industrial Revolution and large-scale infrastructure and international trade meant that bad weather meant that they were starving and many branches of the family tree were cut off during uh, bad weather, basically, crop failures and, and mm. so on. So I realized that perhaps this is not <laughs> uh, as good as it, uh, as it looks on paper. Um, but Ayn Rand was an important influence on me during that period because I read her early on, both fiction and nonfiction. And I, because she was very disturbing, because she was pointing that out constantly, that, uh, look, you're sitting there in your air-conditioned uh, home with uh, being fed by farmers on another continent, and you're blaming capitalism for all the world's ills. And th this started an internal monologue or dialogue uh, within me when I read her. And uh, I, I'm afraid to say that I lost out at the end because I realized that she had, had better points. 
<laughs> and yeah, now I'm happy about it. <laughs> I, I don't think I was then. And if I had to point to one particular thing in her, all her uh, works is the idea of the stolen concept and the idea that uh, as I did and as lots of people and, you know, prominent uh, intellectuals and politicians constantly use concepts and ideas without recognizing what it's based on. And for example, obviously, I mean, wealth is, and technology is one of them, but also when it comes to things like um, epistemology and metaphysics, you know, I was a nihilist and I denied the existence of an objective world, but obviously constantly I was taking it for granted. <laughs> Otherwise I couldn't sort of talk to anybody else and trying to convince them that, for example, I didn't know that they existed. And that forced me to think through, what do I base this on? That's what my sort of eternal Ayn Rand told me. So what's, what's, what's your premise? What do you base this on? And I had to work backwards and realize that I really didn't base it on much. Hmm. Well, a, a lot of uh, young socialists, self-styled socialists in uh, the United States um, always point to Sweden as uh, the ideal socialist system uh, for the United States to emulate. Um, that you know, includes uh, so-called democratic socialists like Bernie Sanders, but in your documentary, Sweden Lessons for America, uh, which won Anthem's Excellence in Filmmaking Feature Documentary Award, you show that Americans really don't uh, know much about Sweden. So is Sweden socialist? <laughs> it's fascinating how people only remember, and particularly Americans, I would say, they seem to only remember 20 years of Sweden's history. It's basically the 1970s and the 1980s, when we also had ABBA music and things like that, that conquered the world. Uh, this was the period when Sweden was really experimenting with socialist ideas. But what they failed to understand is how did we become successful in the first run? Uh, and what happened afterwards when we began to experiment with those ideas. And just bear with me if I give you the brief introduction to Sweden's economic history. We basically had a 100 year episode of having one of the most open economists, economies with the freest markets and the most limited government that the world has ever seen, basically, from 1850 to 1950. Uh, we were one of the poorest countries in Europe, but then a small group of classical liberal politicians, they got power and they began to change Sweden, open up the economy, and the result was 100 years of rapid growth, faster than any other country than Japan during those 100 years. And this meant that in the 1950s, we were one of the richest countries on the planet. And we still had lower taxes than other European countries and lower taxes than the United States. That's what, that has got the Swedish success story started. And that's obviously what, what socialists tend to forget. Then what happened was that um, social democratic politicians said, look, we've got all this wealth lying around. Why don't we start to just redistribute it and give it to, um, to help people out and to preferred interest groups and, and, and so on. And those 20 years when they really did that, the 70s and the 80s, the size of Sweden's government as a percentage of GDP, uh, the public sector, it doubled. We doubled taxation. We regulated the labor market. And that's not our success story. This is really the Atlas Shrugged moment in Swedish history, because that's when we started to lag behind other countries. We didn't create a single net job in the private sector during 25 years. And the big companies that you may have heard of, the Ikeas, the Tetra Packs, and so on, they left Sweden. The innovators and the entrepreneurs, they left for other places. And this was a disaster. And don't just take my word for it. Listen to uh, the, the Social Democratic Minister of Finance in the end of the 1980s, Cello Felt, who said that this experiment with democratic socialism was an absolute failure. It was absurd and unsustainable. And the only way to go 
was market reform. And that's what happened since. It ended in a terrible financial crisis in the early 1990s. Since then, from the left to the right, Swedish politicians have began to reform the Swedish economy again, opening it up. And in many ways, it is more now more open and more deregulated than most other Western economies. Well, I want to get back to Sweden. There's, there's always been a fascination, at least in, in the United States. And Sweden does do, do things differently. Um, and I'm going to get to uh, how you guys have done things differently with regards to, um, to the pandemic and your approach. Um, but first, I've got some really uh, great questions here from our audience, including from Jimbo Pacosti asks, right up your alley, Johan, how would you explain the benefits of globalization to workers who have been displaced due to outsourcing? So I, I think that is really interesting. I, I used to work at Dole Food Company. Um, it was sold, you know, to Ireland and to Japan and to, you know, other countries where uh, that they would have less regulation or a lower tax burden and a lot of people were, were out of work. And, um, you know, you see those themes played out through uh, J.D. Vance's um, Hillbilly Elegy. So to Jimbo's question, how would you explain the benefits of globalization to um, workers who feel that it's not helped them? Yeah. Now, obviously, if it's the case that you lose your job because there's competition from someplace else, it's not a benefit to you in that regard, in that precise moment in time. Um, but then two things, you have to look to the whole picture, to the whole economy, and also everything else in your life. For example, your purchasing power, but I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but the first thing is that it does not just destroy jobs, it creates new jobs, but it does it in more competitive sectors where we can add more value, which means that we long-term uh, create better jobs at better wages. That's what happens. And if you look at the broadest attempt at making um, any kind of uh, assessment of what international trade does in a country like the US, there's a 20 to one ratio 20 in benefits for every one cost in displacement, loss of wages, loss of business, and so on. And obviously that one has got to be taken seriously because, I mean, when you're unemployed, the unemployment rate is not 5%, it's 100%. So obviously that's a great loss to you. But we shouldn't forget those 20% because that's the thing, or, or that 20 uh, rate to one ratio, because that 20 is what makes the economy sustainable and functioning in the long term. If you were to protect all those jobs, obviously short run, it feels good, but long term, you become Argentina and you basically lose out all of the innovation, the upgrade constantly of businesses, and sooner or later you'll lose those jobs as well, but not from a position of strength where the economy can create new jobs. But I would also have to add the um, purchasing um, power part of, of international trade because that's really the great benefit. The people are so afraid of, or at least politicians, of imports, but that, you know, export is just the price that we're paying to get imports, to buy something. When I go to my local uh, store, I do lots of imports and, and that's a benefit to me. And the lower the price and the better the quality, the better off I am. And that's important to all of us. That means that we can create a, this amazing lifestyle that we most of us have in, in Western uh, free market economies. But it's most important for those who have the least, for those on the smallest incomes, because they, they have less money to begin with, but also they consume relatively more of things that are traded internationally like um, um, home electronics, food, clothes, furniture, things like that. Whereas the wealthiest, they spend more locally in services, restaurants, uh, uh, healthcare, um, lawyers, and so on. Which means that if you look 
at a place like the United States. If we abolished all international trade, the wealthiest 10%, they would lose only around 10% of their purchasing power. So they could probably afford it. But the poorest 10% would lose 60% of their purchasing power. So it's really a sort of a spontaneous voluntary redistribution that's going on constantly because of free trade. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think that is a very good start on um, making, making the case of how actually more openness in terms of trade uh, can be of value uh, to all strata of society, but particularly those who are just on those first few rungs of, of economic opportunity. I want to encourage all of you who are uh, watching us, whether on YouTube or you're joining us um, on the Zoom webinar, please ask your questions. This is a tremendous opportunity and we're very grateful uh, that Johan has stayed up late to have this conversation with us. So I do want to though get to something which continues to be on the mind of a lot of people around the world, but um, particularly here in uh, the United States is uh, Sweden's response to COVID. Um, I believe that uh, in the beginning, Sweden made what's considered by some a controversial decision to remain open and, and rely on, on more um, herd immunity. Is that even a correct description? And how has that, um, how's that decision played out as somebody on the ground in Sweden? Well, Swedish authorities, they don't use the, the phrase uh, herd immunity. What they've talked about is that uh, what we're trying to do here is not to sort of stamp out the virus entirely, because this, the assumption is that no one can do that. Uh, it's bound to appear sooner or later. What we can do is flatten the curve of cases so that we can deal with it, so that the healthcare system is not overwhelmed. And uh, then they made the decision, uh, which I uh, agree with, that to keep society as open as possible and um, recommend social distancing to people, recommend them if they can stay at home, work from home, if they can avoid public transportation uh, and so on, they you should do that. And it seems like Swedes, uh, more or less, they abided by the recommendations and they had a, we had a dramatic uh, reduction in mobility in Sweden during this time, but it left some space for individual decisions, for local knowledge, because, you know, the, the planners and the politicians, they don't know what's most important to, to you and me. I mean, it could be you have to go to work because it's important to you and for um, uh, your family. Uh, it might be that relationship or that older relative or that love affair. That means everything to you. And that's something that cannot be captured in the great plans. And in a way, I think because Swedes got that opening, in a way, uh, Swedes have agreed with these policies, sustain more social distancing long term, because we can make those exceptions. Okay, um, I have another question here from Conchita Adsuar, uh, kind of going back to the transition from Sweden being early on a uh, very gung-ho free market uh, capitalistic economy with a lot of growth that created a lot of bounty that allowed people to uh, question maybe we should be having a more redistributionist strategy and then that not going so well. So Conchita wants to know, how did Sweden get its politicians to agree to turn back um, the tide of socialism when they saw it wasn't working? Uh, she observes usually socialism turns authoritarian, um, turns into authoritarianism and uh, despotic politicians can't let go of it no matter how bad people 
might prefer a freer, um, a freer system. So how, how did, how was it just some benevolent economists and politicians who said, you know what, this is not a great idea or was it really more of a grassroots movement where people said, you know, this is, this is not working. Um, you mentioned some of the country, the, the companies that, that left in terms of that Atlas Shrugged moment. Yeah, well, that, that's a very good question because, I, and I agree, had we, in, in many other countries, had this happened, we'd uh, seen a turn towards authoritarianism. I think partly we have long, a long history of uh, liberal democracy to thank, uh, to, to be grateful for, because it meant that some things seemed completely unreasonable, even for the some of the worst socialists in uh, Sweden, and there were still a fairly decentralized society, so there were other forces um, blocking some of the worst excesses. Um, Obviously, they, the most politicians at least, didn't change their mind. Uh, they didn't sort of uh, happily accept the new free market ideas. But it wasn't as fun anymore. The money was, they were out of money. They, they, they thought they were in it to sort of distribute wealth to preferred groups. Uh, suddenly they were out of money and the international market said that we're not going to lend you any more money, basically, for a brief period in time. Our central bank imposed a 500%, not 50%, but 500% to defend the Swedish currency because no one wanted to hold Swedish currency at that time. So the politicians were basically forced to just try anything else to get through this mess. And then I think one of the most important thing was that there were ideas lying around. There were political scientists and philosophers and economists in Sweden who had said for a long time that this is not going to work out and we should try these more classical liberal ideas instead. And they were for a long time considered fringe people and uh, made fun of basically. But when this happened, suddenly there was this window uh, open for potential change and lots of people said, they actually had a point. So why don't we listen to them now when we begin a transition to new policies? And then in a very brief period of time, we got things like, you know, reducing the size of, of government dramatically and taxes, introducing a school voucher system, reforming public pensions, uh, social security from defined uh, benefits to defined contributions, things that wouldn't be acceptable in the United States nowadays. Great. Well, we have some other questions. I see a bunch of, uh, of our regulars in here, including a lot of people who are generous uh, donors to the Atlas Society. Phil, Phil Coates is here. Uh, he asks, in the US, um, in academia and the media, they tend not to be open to non-leftist ideas um, and thinkers. They do not hire, publish, uh, represent those views fairly. Is that pronounced in Sweden and other countries, um, Western and third world? Great question. Yeah, and for some reason, I think it's a little bit better in Sweden than uh, in the United States. And I don't really dare to come up with an, a hypothesis, but perhaps the fact that we went too far in Sweden in a socialist direction created an opening for challenging those ideas and uh, introducing more classical liberal ideas and in in that environment as well so obviously you're up against steep odds if you have a, a, a rational free market perspective in Swedish universities as well. But at least there are some voices and some space there. Got it. Um, Jeff Rembolt, maybe this is, is a, could be his question, is kind of a marker for trying to gauge sort of um, Sweden's political correctness uh, and any uh, media bias was the hydroxychloroquine denigrated in Sweden like it was 
uh, in the United States? Was, what, do you feel like there was a, a politicization or was that maybe more unique to the United States because of all of the, um, the political divisions of, of the past year? Well, I guess it must have been denigrated because I didn't hear much about it in, in the Swedish debate. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think, and I mean, I'm probably not the right person to, uh, to come up with a uh, reflective answer on how, how that debate was going. But what I would say is that when we as Swedes look at the American debate, the American debate became so incredibly politicized immediately, and you had to belong to a particular group and attack the others. It became very tribalist very quickly. Whereas in Sweden, that wasn't really the case. And uh, I wouldn't say that we have much more of a rational uh, climate of ideas. It could be that we have less politicized uh, public health authorities in Sweden. Uh, we have a very different form of uh, division of, of powers where the public health authority is independent. It's not supposed to come up with politicized views. They are supposed to look at the facts, follow the rules, and the, the head is appointed by the government, but they're not supposed to listen to the politicians or, or be involved in the political debate, but just come up with sort of research and try to translate that research to others. So it's not as um, heavily um, tribal as it became quickly in the United States. Yes, yeah, certainly it did. I think that's helpful to contextualize it because it was already we were dealing with something in many ways novel and um, we didn't have all of the information and there was a lot of fear, there's still a huge amount of fear, but agreed that immediately uh, there was a sense that it was being politicized and that led to a lot of uh, suspicion and animosity and inability to, to have an open free exchange um, of ideas. Well, so the most, I'm going to, this is one of my questions, I wanna get back to uh, audience questions. I wanna encourage all of you uh, to, to ask your questions on YouTube and um, on our Zoom. But uh, of course, we're going through something very unopen uh, right now in terms of lockdowns. I'm from California, um, Southern California. We're going back into a complete shutdown. Um, other places around uh, the country, around the world. You, uh, you've written a lot about the economic impact of lockdowns. Um, how bad do you think the repercussions uh, are, are going to be in, in the intermediate and longer term? Yeah, it is bad. And uh, we already knew that uh, even before this pandemic, the World Bank researchers said that the great problem with the pandemics, um, for economically, but also uh, by inference, then health wise, uh, the biggest problem isn't the disease, it's not the cost of treatment and the uh, deaths and the loss of uh, production and trade associated with it, it's our aversion behavior. It's the fact that we're staying away from each other uh, voluntarily, if it's in Sweden, but through forced lockdowns in, in much of the world. And uh, that's something like 80 to 90% of the cost in most epidemics and pandemics uh, historically. Um, and uh, I would say this time around, it's even worse because the lockdowns have been so radical. It's been, it's been quite dramatic and, um, and therefore the costs long-term uh, is gonna be huge. Uh, partly in, in the first instance, because we then lose incomes, we lose wealth, uh, people lose jobs, and we're seeing an increase in extreme poverty around the world by some 100 million this year because of, of that. Uh, but also then long-term, just the fact that we're getting on a, a slightly smaller growth trajectory means that there are less resources going into healthcare, into research on new medical treatments and drugs and, and all those things that 
constantly step by step improve our health every year. So the cost of our aversion, staying away from one another, not being open is going to be, I'm afraid, worse than the virus in itself. Very interesting. Another uh, good question by Jimbo, um, the Coastie. He asks, how would you characterize the, uh, the Chinese economy? Is it uh, crony capitalism? Is it fascism? Um, a lot of times you'll hear in the United States, it's, it's called communism and it, it is a, it, they do call themselves the, the Chinese Communist Party. So, but what is your perspective um, from outside the United States? And, more of a global economic view? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's complicated because I would say that it's mixed. We have parts of the Chinese economy that are communist, basically the state-owned enterprises governed by politicians and their cronies, and they get access to any kind of resources and funding cheaply that they want. And, and this is important for us in the West to realize, and it would should be for the, the Communist Party to realize that this is not why they've been successful for 30 years. These are the things that are dragging down the Chinese economy constantly. And they are basically destroying resources with every move of a, a hand or a lever or a machine. Um, but the other part of the Chinese economy that's um, there is a, a bit of a mixture. It's struggling Chinese entrepreneurs and innovators who are trying to function in a in a market sphere, uh, but constantly then being attacked and harassed. Uh, partly because of this burden from the, the state-controlled sector, but also because the Chinese, the Communist Party obviously wants a piece of the action there as well and puts uh, roadblocks on, on their way to, to progress. But, but that's important to keep in mind because these are some great people, some of the best that China uh, has. And when we see some of the successful exporting companies in China, this is why it's happening. And often they are uh, neglected or attacked by, by the Communist Party. And when they want an IPO, suddenly it's just thrown out. If they want to implement a new technology or start a new app, uh, then the Communist Party suddenly says no. So it's incredibly difficult uh, circumstances that they're having. And this is, I think, the, the real key question for China's future. Um, what are where are they going to go? Are they going to go with the Communist Party and their control instincts, or are they going to let their entrepreneurs uh, uh, give them some more space? Uh, because if they do the first thing, they won't be as successful in the future. This is one of the reasons why I'm not that afraid of China becoming the new sort of authoritarian super uh, power economy in the future, because if they want to be successful long term, they're going to have to become more like us, uh, because sooner or later they'll run out of things to imitate and uh, run out of farmers to put into factories and thereby get some growth. They're going to need innovation. They're going to need an innovative economy, and then they're, they're going to need their innovators. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's a really good point. Um, so. One of the, the questions that, that has come up over the past uh, several years is about how do we treat immigration? How do we treat our, our borders? Um, in an open approach, an optimal open approach, um, what is the way that we should be thinking about immigration? And more specifically, um, how does Sweden treat immigration and, and do you feel that it's optimal or would you find room for improvement? Well, I'd say that in uh, my ideal world, uh, we wouldn't be talking about immigration really. We would be talking about people who get a new job, who decide to move to a new place and uh, uh, rent uh, an apartment or buy a home or uh, what have you. And if they happen to come from somewhere else, what's the problem? If they are not a uh, burden on society, instead contributing with uh, new ideas and hard work, 
that's a great benefit to us. This is what any kind of urbanization is about. People moving to another place because they think they have greater opportunities there and they increase the value of their labor because suddenly they're in a situation where the division of labor is more advanced and they've got complementary um, technology and other workers so that they raise their incomes. And uh, that's really what immigration should be about. I think, whether it's a nation border or a city border. Um, obviously, that's not how most countries deal with it today. Um, and, and Sweden is not definitely, because we have this uh, weird combination of um, being fairly open to people coming to Sweden, but at the same time, making it quite difficult for them to work here for various reasons, partly because we have uh, very strong... We don't have government-controlled uh, minimum wages, but we have very strong collective bargaining. So we have very high de facto minimum wages for low-skilled jobs, uh, which makes it difficult for to work if you're less productive, if you don't know the language, if you don't have the connections and the experience. But at the same time, it's very easy to get welfare. <laughs> so we're basically creating a situation where uh, people are uh, large groups of refugee immigrants specifically who don't work and who rarely see people in their neighborhood working and that obviously creates enormous problems uh, socially economically in Sweden right now and I think that that for a lot of people who are um, concerned about uh, the, the possibility of, of people coming here who have a need right, who are refugees, they need something, um, migrants, and, uh, but that they would not um, uh, necessarily be in that positive that they would take advantage of social services that are paid by people who are working and who are paying taxes. And I think um, that is, is part of where the, uh, the concern comes in. Um, we have another question, uh, again, continuing on this theme that we're seeing of people with a fascination um, about Sweden. Uh, Drain Le McCall wants to know, is there a libertarian movement in Sweden? Um, yeah. Well, there is in most places, I'd uh, hope, but uh, Perhaps it's not as strong and uh, forceful as we'd uh, wish. I actually got my some of my political education in one of the um, libertarian uh, groups in Sweden, the, the Freedom Front, which was a combination of um, having intellectual debates and at the same time some civil disobedience. For example, we ran a speakeasy open all night uh, selling liquor, even though that was banned by the Stockholm authorities back then. So there are some groups like that. But what I think is more important um, and perhaps more influential right now is that, you know, Ludwig van Mises, the Austrian economist, once put it that I, I don't think liberalism is really, in the classical sense, a, a party. It's more an idea that we'd like to see in all different parties, in different groups, influencing what they're doing. And I think that's what we're seeing in Sweden, that um, there have been strong and influential classical liberals in intellectuals, writers, journalists, economists, and politicians. And they are in different places, and they are in some of the Swedish political parties as well, influencing how they think about things, from the economy to COVID-19. And perhaps that's the way it should be, when voices whispering in every year, everywhere. Fascinating. All right. Well, folks, we have about 10 more minutes. So slip in your last minute questions um, to take advantage of this wonderful opportunity to have a chat with Johan Norberg, author of Open. Uh, Larry Parks. Hey, Larry, thank you for your support. Uh, asks, free society with free trade assumes that one has real money. Um, he is concerned that with paper money, the amount of money becomes unlimited, unlimited money resulting in unlimited spending, un uh, unlimited government. Uh, 
spending results in unlimited government, i.e. tyranny, how would you recommend that we get out of this spiral? I share the worry, and uh, especially right now, uh, when you see how politicians and governments around the world have dealt with this crisis, they basically just turned every tap on. And um, the latest numbers I saw said that uh, governments in the 20 largest economies, they've increased uh, their spending, and specifically borrowing by some $5,000 billion, but central banks, have increased their uh, uh, liquidity and, and, and just mon the money supply by $6,000 billion during this pandemic. And, you know, that's a couple of thousand billions here and a couple of thousand billions there. Uh, that's adds up to some real money in the end. And I don't understand how this is going to happen without it destroying uh, our, our currencies. And um, we, we really had some big problems before the pandemic, but this is getting even worse. So far, when they've um, increased the money supply, money hasn't been used that much. The turnover, the mobility hasn't been uh, that great. So, so far, we haven't seen dramatic inflation except in the parts of the economy that we don't really measure when it comes to inflation, like assets, uh, stock market, securities, and so on. So money ends up somewhere. And, and this really worries me. And uh, uh, I don't see the way out short term. Long term, we're going to have to uh, take that discussion about what do we do instead, because it's not a sane thing to have this kind of power in the hands of uh, almost discretionary, arbitrary decisions by some, some civil servants here and there. Okay, um, here's a question. I'm not sure how it relates, but G Angel has asked it a couple of times, so I'm going to throw it out there, even if it's like off um, your area of expertise. We, I, I've got another question we can end up with, but G. Angel wants to know about renting, leasing, is it a superior model to private ownership? Um, is, quote, you will own nothing and then you will be happy, a threat to capitalism going forward uh, into an era with limited resources? I don't really understand that, but did that speak to you? Uh, I don't know if I got it right, but I can talk about what I think about when I hear a question like that, because some people now say that when we uh, have new technologies and um, we all have smartphones, we end up in a, a great sharing economy where we realize that there are things that we don't need to own. We can rent it when we need it. Everything from uh, transportation services to, um, you know, I have a, actually have a friend who rents out her uh, bathroom <laughs> to people who need it and can just sign up on, on uh, online if they have to go in the vicinity. Um, and some people say that, look, this means that we've uh, moved away from capitalism, that we've entered something else instead. And I think that's the complete misreading of what's going on. This is free market capitalism at its best, realizing how we use resources in the best and the most efficient way possible. And people realize that they can invest in everything from property to a car to um, particular tools uh, and, and then rent it out at, at the best price uh, through the help of modern digital uh, technology. And I think that goes for, I mean, apartments as well. I've never understood this urge to, uh, you've got to own it. Uh, uh, no, we need property rights. That's what we need. And then for some people, it makes much more sense to rent because you become more mobile. You take less of a risk yourself. Uh, and, and definitely that whole thing with the government like the US government constantly trying to subsidize home ownership absolutely doesn't make sense. Try to make sure that 
We had strong property rights, transferability, and then a rental market that works without any kind of uh, rent control and so on. That would, I think, create the best use of resources. That is uh, such a fascinating answer. I'm glad I spun up um, the, the question, even though I didn't quite understand it. But uh, you got me thinking also about that in terms of um, the sharing economy. I am a part of the sharing economy. I um, rent my home um, through Airbnb, through Pure Space, um, now an Airbnb uh, shareholder too. And I wrote an article back in, in the day and gave a speech, would Ayn Rand Airbnb? Because it stuck in my craw, it still does a little bit. Uh, when we talk about just even the term sharing economy and that uh, it, there was sort of an aversion to thinking about it and like, oh, it's, you know, you're just, you're a host because you just really want to, um, you know, have other people in your home and you, you know, you want to open up your home to other people. Um, yeah, that, that's part of it, but I'm, you know, also want to, uh, to make money and to um, provide people with a really good experience. So, um, so it's, it's been interesting. And I think that uh, although there's been sort of ups and downs with you know, going the tech bubble of, of just sharing economy, everything, and then kind of pulling back to, to what makes more sense and now seeing additional uh, things that are, are being rented and, and shared. So as we uh, kind of wrap up, um, uh, we'd love to hear from you, Johan, about uh, the year ahead. What are, you know, even though we, we don't mean to minimize the very um, significant threats and bummers and things that are not going well uh, in terms of lockdowns and other potential threats on the horizon. But um, I always like to talk about uh, optimism and gratitude, not as a Pollyannish orientation, but just as a, a way of grounding yourself in a sense of agency, um, even if things are really, really terrible, sometimes finding things that are, are are good or that you that make you feel more empowered. So uh, what would you say to, to the audience and particularly many of us here in the United States that are um, disappointed about uh, politics and, and the most recent election? Some people are happy, but obviously a lot of people are, are also very disappointed. What are some of the things that we can uh, and should be grateful for and looking forward um, to in addition to reading reading your book <laughs> yeah that's a reason for gratitude being able to do that uh well well thank you that's an, a nice way to uh, end uh here uh trying to see something positive in in this um and the mess that we're in then i would point to one particular thing it is just realizing where we're at, uh, the, the magnificent gift that we've been given to be born and to live in this tiny uh, part of human existence, when we've had these kinds of, of freedoms and openness and growth and innovation. You know, had you taken the past 300,000 years of Homo sapiens existence and condensed it into a 24-hour day, then the 200 years when almost everything happened after the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and we saw this explosion of growth, that's the last minute of those 24 hours, the, the last 60 seconds. And we happen to be here to experience it. And I think of that specifically when I think about awful things that happen and think about what would have happened had this happened to us in any other era and take the pandemic you know it's it's awful and and some of how governments react to it is is even worse but just keep in mind where would we have been had this struck in any other era uh it would have been more like the black death had this happened uh in 1950, we wouldn't have had a single ventilator on the planet. Uh, had this happened uh, 
in the early 1970s, we wouldn't have had any technology to read the virus genome. So we wouldn't have been able to create a vaccine. Uh, had this happened in um, the, um, well, before the 1990s, we wouldn't have been able to meet like this. We would all have been isolated in our homes without any kind of connection to the outside world and to older relatives and, and so on. So it really means that if it had to happen, if the pandemic had to happen, this is the best time ever to experience such an awful event. And that to me, is something that I'm grateful for every day. Well, gratitude is a big theme for us at the Atlas Society. I had mentioned your number one fan, uh, Jay LaPere, the chairman of the board of trustees of the Atlas Society, who has asked us to, uh, to continue to work on that and elevate that as we did in our um, My Name is Gratitude, Draw My Life, and as we are doing with this conversation, Johan, Thank you so much. I know it's, it's 11 p.m. there, so really appreciate uh, all of the work you do. Hope that this is one of many future conversations. We're very grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. This was a pleasure. And thank you to all of you who have joined us on, um, on Zoom and on YouTube and who are watching. Thanks, you know, in particular to, I see a lot of our donors, John Wendell, don't think I don't see you. Thank you very much. And I want to encourage uh, those of you who, um, who like our work, who enjoy these webinars, to consider uh, making a end-of-the-year tax-deductible contribution. The Atlas Society is a nonprofit. And I mentioned our board is double-matching all new and increased contributions. So donors like John Wendell upped their game a little bit this year. Uh, had an opportunity to, to boost that. So really appreciate all of you. Please join us next week for those who need a little uh, shot of politics. Uh, my friend Jackie Pick Deason is going to join us. Of course, she is the one who uh, brought forward in, in uh, the hearings in Georgia that um, blockbuster video uh, of uh, potential um, election irregularities. So she'll talk a little bit about that, but she's also a wonderful long-term expert on uh, energy reform and energy policy. So please sign up. We will see you next week. And until then, just keep shining. You all are stars.